0: Cardiology today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this podcast. I am professor of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I'm the chief of pediatric cardiology. Thank you very much for joining me for our 213th episode of the podcast. This week, we're moving into the world of surgery, and the title of the work we'll be reviewing is "Comparative Costs of Management Strategies for Neonates with Symptomatic Tetralogy of Fallot." The first author of this work is Michael O'Burn, and the senior author Brian Goldstein and the authors come from multiple centers representing the so-called Congenital Cardiac Research Collaborative. When we're done reviewing this paper, I'm hopeful that Michael O'Byrne will join us to speak with us about it. Therefore, let's get straight onto the article, and then a conversation about costs associated with Tetralogy of Fallot repair. This week's work begins with a number of comments about Tetralogy of Fallot, with the first being that complete repair outside of the newborn period is generally associated with low mortality. But patients who have symptomatic cyanosis in the newborn period remain a patient of controversy in regards to the optimal approach, namely staged, usually with a surgical shunt, or primary repair. More recently, as we've discussed on multiple prior episodes, transcatheter approaches such as RV outflow stenting or ductal stenting have made the question of medically optimal approach to be even more controversial. The authors review the potential theoretical medical advantages of one approach versus the other and they reference their recent Congenital Cardiac Research Collaborative paper, which was published in this journal a couple of months ago, and some of the authors are the same, showing that there were no overall mortality differences or adverse event differences between the two approaches, with more re-interventions and a longer cumulative hospital length of stay in the staged repair patients. The authors then explain that if the costs of the two approaches could be compared, this might allow for more information to help inform this decision of which approach might be preferred. They even suggest that a total medical cost figure might be a kind of composite measure of morbidity in that it would effectively combine all the range of adverse events into a single metric, quantifying morbidity, that might not be otherwise quantifiable, and, as the authors state, and I quote, converting dichotomous outcomes of myriad severity into a single continuous metric, cost, is also statistically expedient which is especially important in congenital cardiology in which statistical power is frequently a limitation. With this as a background, the authors sought to link clinical data from the multicenter CCRC Tetralogy study with individual patient level costs from the FIS database or the Pediatric Health Information Systems database to see if there were any significant differences in costs for staged versus primary repair over the first 18 months of life with the hypothesis that increased total length of stay would increase resource utilization and other morbidities associated with stage repair, and would be reflected in higher cost. The authors remind us that the CCRC is a multi-center collaborative with 12 centers, but for this study nine contributed, and had consecutive neonates with Tetralogy Fallot who underwent intervention at less than or equal to 30 days of age between January of 2005 and November 30, 2017. Evaluating for differences in outcomes between those undergoing primary versus staged repair. The authors performed a retrospective multicenter cohort study, combining the data from the CCRC Tetralogy study with a cost data set from FIS, effectively linking these two databases in a de identified manner. If a subject could not be found in the FIS database, they were excluded and the authors explained that the patients who underwent staged versus primary repair had no important differences in characteristics. The investigators explained how they obtained cost data adjusted for regional wage price indices, and also how an inflation adjustment was performed until 2017, using the Consumer Price Index for medical care and services and costs, and they were calculated from line-item charges in FIS, with the primary outcome being total hospital cost over the first 18 months of life from birth to day-of-life 540. Cost per day was chosen as a complementary primary outcome, which was used to mitigate against the impact of subject deaths or those who were lost to follow-up. There's a lot of granular information regarding how the authors assessed costs and looked also at the components of the costs, and also how they dealt with the fact that sometimes catheterizations were performed and recorded in one database, but not the other, and how they adjusted for this. Finally, there is a very complex discussion regarding the statistical methodology, and it's quite robust, and for those interested in the technical aspects of this, which is fascinating but beyond the scope of this podcast, I'd recommend you take a look at page 1173 of this manuscript. And on to the results. There's a lovely figure, Figure 1, which shows the patient population, but the bottom line is that there were a total of 324 patients, of which 40% were primarily repaired from six centers. So that means there were 131 primary repair patients versus 193 staged repair patients. These were roughly 60% of all of the CCRC Tetralogy patients. The authors explained that the use of primary repair varied a lot between the six centers, with one center having only 16% of their patients undergoing primary repair, yet another having as many as 64%. The authors explain that prematurity was a bit higher in the stage repair patients, 25% of them, versus 17% in the primary repair patients, though this difference did not reach statistical significance. And so first, how did these patients clinically fare? Well, mortality at 18 months was not significantly different, with a mortality rate of 7% in the primary repair group versus 4% in the staged repair, but this difference was not statistically significant. The 18-month risks for complication or reinterventions were also similar between the two cohorts, but primary repair was associated with a higher likelihood for ECMO need, seen in 6% of this cohort, versus 1% of the staged patients. On the positive side, primary repair was associated with a lower 18-month length of stay as well as ICU length of stay. And what about the costs, which was of course the rationale for this work? Well, total 18-month cost for the primary repaired patients was a median of $179,494, and this was less than that for staged repair, where the median was $222,799, and this difference was statistically significant. Cost per day alive and department level costs were all also lower for primary repair. Using a propensity score adjusted analysis, primary repair was associated with lower overall total cost with a cost ratio of 0.73, as well as lower departmental level costs. Finally, were there any cath-palliated patients in this group? Well, in fact, 30% of the staged patients did undergo a cath-palliative procedure, including pulmonary valvuloplasty in 48%, RV outflow stent in 14%, and PDA stenting in 38%. Interestingly, 13% of these cath-related patients had to undergo a subsequent surgical shunt. When comparing this subgroup of cath-palliated patients there was no significant difference in total 18-month cost or cost per day. In their discussion, the authors stated, and I quote, In this multicenter cohort study comparing costs associated with primary and stage repair in neonates with Tetralogy of Fallot, primary repair was associated with lower total costs through 18 months, even after adjusting confounding by indication. Cost per day alive, a metric that mitigates potential bias introduced by early mortality, was also lower." in primary repaired patients, in unadjusted analyses. In adjusted analyses, the point estimates for this metric also demonstrated a cost advantage for primary repair, but the difference was no longer statistically significant. It's not possible to determine if this was due to inadequate statistical power or to the effect of the modeling strategy. Secondary analyses demonstrated that all department-level costs favored primary repair. Although primary investigations have explored the cost of care in this population, to our knowledge, this is the first that combines administrative data with directly reviewed patient-level data. The authors comment on the fact that prior works by this team and others have failed to show survival or morbidity benefits to one approach versus the other, and they wonder if this cost difference might tip the scales in one direction in regards to an optimal approach given the so-called better value of primary repair. They also posit that this sort of cost analysis could be viewed as a sort of overall means of assessing a range of disparate clinical outcomes, and maybe it's a means of assessing morbidity complementing prior other means of doing this. They mention the extreme costs associated with tetralogy for low care, and feel that understanding the optimal approach and its cost might be important for this reason, while also setting in motion better long-term health and well-being for the patient though this podcast host is admittedly not entirely buying that last argument. The investigators then speak of how to practically use these findings in clinical practice, and they suggest that perhaps high-performing centers, which I assume they mean to be those who have good results with primary repair, should be the centers that all patients with tetralogy should be sent to in a rationale for regionalization, and this may result in lower costs, ...though they admit that the loss of money for travel and lost productivity would be difficult to assess in this sort of an analysis. The authors comment briefly on the limited data in this work showing that when catheterization was used as the palliative approach... ...the costs were no different between primary or stage repairs for tetralogy of Fallot. And they mention that since the end of this study in the past four to five years, techniques for catheter-based approaches have improved... ...which may tilt this analysis even more towards this sort of palliative approach... Or, potentially, as more expensive tools are used, like drug-eluting stents for PDAs, perhaps this might even be more expensive. And so further studies on this are needed, and they point to the upcoming Pediatric Heart Network-sponsored COMPASS trial, which will be assessing outcomes of ductal stent versus surgical shunts for ductal-dependent neonates. The authors remind us that we know little about differences in things like functional status, meaning things like neurodevelopmental outcomes, exercise performance, or quality of life in patients treated one way or the other, and these sorts of outcomes, if different between the two groups, could very substantially skew costs in a completely different direction. The authors then review the many potential limitations of this work, but also provide statistical arguments to mitigate nearly every one of the limitations that they suggest in this large database study. And so they conclude. We conclude that primary repair was associated with superior value and lower cost with similar mortality risk through 18 months of age. Where feasible and appropriate at the center level, primary repair should be considered as the primary strategy for management of patients with symptomatic tetralogy of Fallot. Future data from a broader range of centers, greater experience with transcatheter palliation, and inclusion of longer-term clinical and functional health outcomes could influence these conclusions. Accompanying this work is an editorial comment. The title of this comment is Neonatal Tetralogy of Fallot, You're the Next Contestant on The Price is Right. The author of this work is Aaron Eckhauser, and Dr. Eckhauser comes to us from the Section of Pediatric Cardiothoracic Surgery in the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at the University of Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, United States. Dr. Eckhauser begins his comments by restating the main findings of Dr. O'Byrne's work, specifically that since the two approaches, staged and primary repair, have essentially equal outcomes clinically, because the costs associated with primary repair were lower, primary repair probably represents best value and should be the predominant treatment strategy in symptomatic neonates who have tetralogy of fallot. Dr. Eckhauser takes some issue with this and offers his rationale for why he does. First, he reminds us that in the initial study on the clinical outcomes, the overall observed risk for death was 10.2% versus 7.4%, and though not statistically different, a 27% difference between these two groups in mortality should at least raise what he calls a legitimate concern. He also mentions lower morbidity figures in the staged patients from the prior work on this same data set and re-emphasizes the absence of neurodevelopmental outcomes and states that he is not convinced by these data that the two strategies should be viewed as equivalent in regards to either mortality or morbidity. He also takes issue with the notion of using cost as a so-called tiebreaker in the decision of which way to proceed. He reminds that if a center has better results with stage repair, the additional cost may well be worth it, and he reminds us that these cost analyses are not performed on a center level where the cost of a staged repair in a given place may be similar to primary repair, and he offers other examples of other pediatric cardiac surgical outcomes where this has been demonstrated to be the case, and he feels that lumping all centers into a single cohort may not be telling the entire story, and that until this is studied at a center level, he feels these data must be necessarily taken with a grain of salt. Dr. Eckhauser speaks of the concept of institutional culture and how if forced to change from an institutional policy of staged to primary repair, it could have psychological, clinical, and cultural effects to a group that already has good outcomes with an alternative approach, and he wonders if a $40,000 difference is worth that sort of center disruption. He again emphasizes changes in catheter-based approaches and wonders aloud if the data in this work accurately reflect today's world. And he ends his editorial comment by congratulating the authors, ending with the statement, as is often the case, great research often generates more good questions than it answers. Well, there's a fair bit to unpack here, but I'll say that I do tend to favor Dr. Eckhauser's thoughts on this matter. I'm not sure I entirely accept that primary repair is in all ways similar or even superior to stage repair, particularly in an era where we can palliate in the cath lab with ductal stenting. The impact of being able to eat sooner after cath, come off ventilation nearly immediately, possibly go home faster after interventional procedure that does not require cardiopulmonary bypass are all factors that are hard to measure but may well be important in unmeasurable ways in a newborn or young infant. Additionally, the impact of larger size and the possibility of a surgeon avoiding a transannular patch may be a factor worth considering. I wish to be clear, I am not advocating one approach over the other, and at the present time, in the absence of these sort of data, I think taking a neutral approach may be prudent. However, I do think that the notion that the outcomes are exactly the same is probably false, or at least not known, and so though knowing that primary repair is generally on average cheaper, I am not entirely sold on this being an important rationale in choosing an approach." At this point, I think we should move on to our conversation with the first author of this work, Dr. Michael O'Byrne. Joining us now to discuss this week's work is its first author, Dr. Michael O'Byrne, who is an interventional cardiologist in the Cardiac Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. O'Byrne is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard University who received his MD degree from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. In 2014, he completed his Master of Science degree in Clinical Epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an interventional cardiologist at CHOP, but also a clinical epidemiologist, and is the author of many, many papers assessing big data sets on important questions in cardiology, mostly in the world of invasive cardiology. You'll recall that just a few weeks ago, he was the senior author on a recent work that we reviewed on this podcast on WPW with Dr. Chris Janssen. Michael is an NIH-NHLBI-funded researcher and has won many prestigious awards in his relatively short career. It is indeed a great pleasure and honor to have him join us this week to discuss this important work. Welcome, Michael, to the podcast. I'm here now with Michael O'Byrne. Michael, thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Oh, It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Great pleasure. Mike, very much enjoyed this work as I do all of your works, always very provocative and interesting. You know, this work included a small subset of staged repair patients who actually had catheter-based approaches to palliation, followed later by a complete repair. And for this group, there was not really a cost benefit you could demonstrate for uh, staged versus primary repaired patients. Clearly, in the interim few years since you collected this data set, the approaches to palliating these patients in the lab have even improved more uh, in what we can do in the lab. Do you think that our greater facility or success in palliating cyanotic tetralogy patients in the cath lab may turn things in a different direction cost-wise for this approach? Or do you think that the cost of the equipment, the lab time, will be such that it's unlikely that from a cost perspective, this approach will ever prove financially superior to primary repair?
1: That's a great question.
0: Um, I'll admit my bias. As an interventional cardiologist,
1: I do think that uh, transcatheter approaches to palliation should reduce the cost associated with palliation. Uh, The main leverage point, I think, is in reducing the hospital length of stay at the initial palliation and then the associated costs of the intensity of care after an open-heart surgery. I also think that if PDA stenting and RV outflow tract stenting mature, we'll have less reintervention. That'll also reduce the uh, longitudinal costs associated with transcatheter palliation for cyanotic heart disease. However, at the same time, I think it's, to be fair, it's really important to determine whether transcatheter palliation with stent in an empirical way complicate the subsequent repair and make that sort of integrated cost wor- uh, worse or higher. That's one reason why I think the COMPASS trial is going to be really, really important. Although it's not focused specifically on neonatal tests, um, it'll be helpful to see how surgeons from a number of programs contend with PA reconstruction after a PDA stunt, or, um, which I think is really critical.
0: Yeah, very interesting point. Uh, thank you. You know, Michael, in your discussion, you speak a fair bit about the fact that this work does not look at other aspects of outcomes like neurodevelopmental ones or exercise capacity in tetralogy patients, comparing those who were primarily or staged uh, repairs, uh, potentially avoiding a long bypass run in the newborn period, and maybe even a less long period of low cardiac output if one were staged. Do you have any thoughts regarding whether you believe that a longer view of these patients, looking at these sort of factors, might tilt the cost analysis more towards a palliative approach? It seemed to me that uh, that was something you were at least potentially hinting at in your discussion.
1: Yeah, so I, I would uh, point out that Dr. Zambi and Nicholson are still analyzing the quality of life and their developmental outcome data, the short-term data. So I don't have a clear answer about the, on the facts about what, whether the difference between stage and primary repair. I would reframe the argument, though. I think it's more likely that the cost won't be affected by differences in those um, outcomes. But if there is a substantive difference in quality of life uh, or no developmental outcomes in the short term or exercise performance in the longer term, it may be worth a small difference in cost that we see, Um, that would be below our sort of willingness to pay threshold as a society. Um, You know, I think that the reduced morbidity um, may be cost-neutral or cost-saving, but I think that's less likely,
0: frankly. I see. I see. Interesting. You know, Michael, uh, cost is clearly important, but so too, of course, is the final hemodynamic status of the patient. And one of the rationales I often hear for waiting and performing a ductal stent might be the possibility of avoiding a pulmonary valve intervention in the newborn period, specifically a transannular patch. Um, Do you believe that this is a reasonable rationale for avoiding a primary repair or do you think that the potential advantage of the avoidance of a transannual patch is overstated or maybe not supported by the literature? Well, I'm not a surgeon, so I have to be a little bit humble about this. But I think that the patients that we're talking about that are
1: included in this study and that we're thinking about for a neonatal either primary repair or a stage palliation are those with cyanosis. And so their anatomy, whether it's the pulmonary valve, the RV outflow tract, or the pulmonary arteries, are going to be small. I think it's a very small percentage of these patients that are going to be eligible for a non transannular patch repair. The potential value um, of a palliative strategy is in preserving the pulmonary arteries, maybe getting a better pulmonary artery response, which may give you a better hemodynamic response in the long run. And again, I think the COMPASS trial is going to be really helpful um, in a different uh, sort of a different mix of patients, but in a similar situation to see how that,
0: um, how that bears out. And the Compass trial is going to include tetralogy, but also other forms of congenital heart disease. Is that right? That
1: that's correct. A number of uh, patients who have uh, critical cyanotic heart disease in the neonatal period or in the first month of life, and then who are going to uh, undergo or are expected to undergo a subsequent palliation in the first three
0: months of life. I see. Well, that I'm um, very exciting paper uh, work. I'm sure it's going to change our field. Um, you know, uh, Michael, in his editorial to your uh, wonderful paper, Dr. Eckhauser seemed to take issue with the notion that the outcomes were the same between the primary repaired and the stage repair patients. And he noted that even though it wasn't statistically significant, there was a substantial uh, numerical mortality difference of 27% between those who were staged versus primary repair And again, he admitted, of course, that it did not meet statistical significance, but he just thought that the absolute value difference was substantial um, and the number of patients, although large, wasn't gigantic. I wondered how you would respond to his thoughts about not entirely believing the notion that the 18-month clinical outcomes were the same in the two groups. So, yeah, I, I,
1: I want to recognize Dr. Eckhauser. I think his editorial was a um, really important counterpoint and um, a and really useful uh, tool, and he's a, a clever guy, and I, I really respect Rusty quite a bit, known since he was a fellow uh, in Philadelphia with us. I think it's really – I also want to you know take the opportunity to recognize the original paper by Brian Goldstein, and Andy Glatz, and the really careful work that the CCRC analytic team, Courtney McCracken and Mike Kellerman did, Um, in both analyzing the primary cohort and then the subsequent cost analysis that we did uh, in conjunction with our team. There are two parts to the answer. The first part is, I think, is one I would quibble with a little bit or at least disagree uh, with Rusty a bit. In the unadjusted analysis, the survival curves do cross, such that late survival in the total cohort for the staged uh, population is actually worse than in the primary repair group in the, the initial paper. In the subgroup that we looked at in cost, the unadjusted analyses were the opposite. There was a small two percent or so difference in survival at um, 18 months uh, between the two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look in the adjusted analyses, they're very similar, though they're um, you know about a 0.82 hazard ratio in the total adjusted analyses. I am not a, a you know a, a you know a sort of stringent person or a, a fanatic in regards to p values, but You know, I think that there is a very small, absolute difference in mortality that we perceive. And it was flipped between the sub-cohort and the the initial group, which shows you that in small differences, there is a a potential. And that's why we use uh, confidence intervals and p-values to make decisions about whether things are significant or not. The question, you know, therefore, I think that they are very close to each other. Um, it's clear, however, and the second part of the answer is that there is a clear benefit in the short-term mortality associated with a BT shunt over a neonatal uh, tap repair. It's clearly uh, less likely for a patient to die after a uh, neonatal BT shunt than after a neonatal primary repair. But that if you follow those patients for long enough, that difference disappears and it's not significant any longer, at least in our cohort and at least with uh, a surgical palliation. And so you know, I think that's a really important distinction, and it's important that we think about the integrated risk in this population, that we don't look at only the upfront risk of the initial operation as the ultimate risk. I think that's the real contribution of uh, Dr. Goldstein's initial paper. I think that our cost paper sort of backs that up and supports that with a secondary outcome, clearly not as important as mortality, but important as a secondary measure.
0: This is very reminiscent of the SVR trial with... uh, the uh, SANO versus the BT shunt, and uh, how initially it appeared one way, and then in the end they sort of came out about the same, roughly. Right, and, and I think we have another paper out in Jack Advance where we're looking at that
1: SVR data, uh, supplementing that with cost stuff up come up in the last month, and again, it shows that there is, even in that population, no difference in cost between the two. And so I guess, again, it's, there's a parallel between those two
0: populations, for sure. I see. Well, Michael, for those in the audience, it's pretty late on a... Uh, Tuesday night after a long weekend, so I'm sure you've been working hard, so I'm going to finish up with my last question, which is the most difficult question, which is, you know, given what you know about the outcomes of these approaches, as well as improvements in catheter-based palliative approaches to tetralogy, and of course you're very knowledgeable about it, because like myself, you're an interventionalist, what is the policy at your own institution CHOP in regards to the cyanotic tetralogy patient? Are you Taking these patients to the cath lab to stent ducts or outflow tracks, uh, or are you sending them for primary repair? And if so, are you in agreement with the policies that your institution has generally followed? Yeah, I think that's a uh, you know it's a critical question. Um, I
1: think, like all institutions, um, our our team reviews each patient individually. And a cyanotic newborn is an important patient that the ICU, the surgery team, the imaging staff, and our our team review on a daily basis. We pay attention to both their individual characteristics and the data that we have available. Um, That being said, our current surgeons have asked us, when possible, to palliate patients in this scenario, in the cath lab, either through a ductal stent or an RV outflow tract stent, which is a departure from the era in which we describe in this paper. You know, that was either primary repair or a surgical palliation. That's a change in practice, and so I think that we would have to look at that data again. I do think that the potential benefit of palliation, palliation, um, at least in my sort of biased view, does maybe make up for that. And I think especially in the TET population who have integrated pulmonary blood flow, um, there is, it's, a, it's a less risky proposition, and those patients do seem to leave the ICU pretty quickly. And so I think it's worth revisiting at some point in the future. And it,
0: it will be part of the sort of the Compass trial, as, well, as I mentioned. I see. And uh, Michael, since I have you, uh, one of the leaders in interventional cardiology, maybe you could share with us how do you decide in a plain tetralogy with pulmonary stenosis whether to go with a ductal stent or an outflow tract stent?
1: Yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, there, there are some relatively simple. Sort of basis. If it's a patient who's left the hospital, had their duct closed, and PGE no longer is <laughs> uh, helpful, then you is know, we don't, we can't, we can't <laughs> make a duct. We can't stent a duct that's not there. Right. Uh, we don't, we don't recanalize uh, ligamentum. Um, and so I think our preference is to stent the duct if it's possible. Um, that leaves the RV outflow tract um, not, uh, you know, without metal in it, and makes the eventual repair I think somewhat easier. Um, I do think that there is evidence, there's one paper in Jack Interventions from several years ago that did show superior pulmonary artery growth after an RV outflow tract stent, and there are people who will advocate that it's a better, more physiologic sort of repair. Technically, I don't think of them as being fundamentally that different. Uh, they're both, you know, crossing, you know, or, or they're both stenting in a, a patient who's um, cyanotic, and so there's some risk associated with it. But, you know, our practice has been to, if in a patient who has a duct, to stent the duct first. I see. Um, as a you know as a, as a, a least uh, disruptive uh, sort of intervention, that may be a carryover. Our, you know uh, the surgeons who were in charge of our program when I was in training very much didn't want stent material on the RV outflow tract. Um, our current surgeons, who you know well, I, I think they have um, been much more sort of flexible about that and um, intolerant of having some uh, stent material when they do the, the repair. And so that opens up a, a, an option. The third option that we use very infrequently is pulmonary valvuloplasty, and those are only in patients who have primarily valvar stenosis, and it, it very rarely is effective in, in, this, in this patient population. It's so a handful of patients.
0: Well, I appreciate you going over that little technical point, which really had nothing whatsoever to do with your paper, except in a very peripheral matter. But i like to take advantage of the fact that we have uh, an interventionalist here. You know, it's interesting how we talked just momentarily ago, how you mentioned the fact that pulmonary valvuloplasty is not generally very effective. I very well remember 15 years ago when we started doing this. That was a very novel approach to just dilate the pulmonary valve, and there were some patients in whom it was effective, but now, of course, we know with a much larger experience that maybe we got lucky sometimes, but uh, on average, stent's probably a little more durable repair. Well, Michael, thank you very, very much for joining us this week on the podcast. Very much appreciate your coming, and I want to congratulate you and the many, many uh, co-authors on this really extraordinary work, Looking at outcomes in a very different way, but potentially very, very important one. Thank you so much. All right, thanks very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure. Well, once again we have Dr. O'Burn in his extremely erudite commentary. Boy, what a smart guy he is. Of course, I well remember back when he was a medical student working in our division at Columbia with my friend Doctor Daphne Sue. We all knew he was gonna be an important person one day, and that seems to be one thing that we definitely got right. I think that Michael's comments about the clinical outcomes of palliation versus primary repair and his explanation about why we should consider the two approaches to be similar clinically to be very well-reasoned, and I think he may have changed my mind, at least in regards to surgical palliation versus primary repair. It seems that this question of which approach is best is a challenging one to address, given the tremendous variability in care. I'm sure you well remember episode 86 of the podcast, when we discussed this very topic with Dr. Laura Mercerosa of Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and for those interested, I'd suggest you take a listen to her thoughts on this, in which she also studied primary versus stage repairs. Getting back to our conversation tonight with Dr. O'Byrne, I also thought his comments regarding what impact transcatheter palliation will have on outcomes to be most interesting, As Mike is uncommonly clear in his thoughts and words, I really have nothing more to add other than to once again thank Dr. O'Byrne for joining us this week on the podcast once more. To conclude this 213th episode of Heart Pediatric Cardiology today, we hear the wonderful aria, De Vieni Non Tardar, from the final act of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro, and we hear it sung by the wonderful American soprano Lizette Oropesa, who hails from New Orleans, Louisiana. Ms. Oropesa is the winner of multiple prestigious operatic competitions, most notably the Metropolitan Opera National Council Grand Finals, and today she is a highly sought after singer throughout the world. Thank you so much for joining me this week for the 213th episode, and thanks so much again to our guest. I hope everybody has a wonderful week ahead.